Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Isaac Morehouse, founder and CEO of Crash. Isaac, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So Isaac, you've been in, in this sort of world for the education world, this sort of entrepreneurship world for a while. Why don't you give a brief background of what you're now doing at Crash and what you did before to, to get to this point? Yeah, so at Crash, we are creating a talent marketplace for specifically for entry-level non-technical talent, really people who are looking to get their first professional job and they're not specialists. They're not really sure. They're not like, oh, I want to be a coder. Or, oh, I know I'm going to go into practice law. They're kind of generalist types and they've got some, uh, some skill and ability, but they're looking to, to get started. And so it's a, it's a reverse jobs board, a way for people to create a profile, to signal their skills and to create pitches to go out and, and attract specific companies how I came to that, and we're very early with Crash, but just over the last six years, I started a company called Praxis, which is a startup apprenticeship program. It's an online boot camp followed by an in-person six-month apprenticeship at a startup. And for a similar audience, people who want to get their career started, and I, I created it as an explicit reaction against the college to career sort of conveyor belt idea as a, look, if you want to start your career, uh, and you're coming right out of high school or whatever, what's the most direct route to get there? And the idea that you would sit in a classroom separated from the marketplace uh, for four years, and that's supposed to make you more able to navigate the marketplace. Uh, the analogy I like to use is, and this is nothing radical on your show, I know, but the analogy is like, if we taught bike riding the way we sort of prep people for careers, it would be, you know, you spend 20 years studying bikes and looking at pictures of them and labeling them and learning the history. And then you're dropped off in the middle of the highway. It's like, okay, congratulations, go ride. You've never gotten to try one, you know? So the idea was to create something that makes that transition much easier. Get the basic stuff you need to not be a complete idiot on your first day on the job and have some value to offer. Lower the cost to employers of bringing people in earlier by creating a low, a low price apprenticeship program where they're there learning and working um, and let them use that as a jumping off point. And so having built that, having grown it over the last five years and just seeing how effective it was, I've just constantly been itching to do something like this that can be massive in scale. And I, I sort of talk about the difference between changing lives and changing life itself and changing lives feels really good. And I think we need to as humans to like feel good and healthy. And it's a, it's a nice thing to be nice to individual people and help individual people that you can see. But changing the way that life itself is structured, maybe that's arrogant sounding, but that's, that's exciting to me. I want to change the incentive structure of the world when it comes specifically to getting career started. And so Crash was kind of born out of the insights gained over, over creating the, the Praxis Apprenticeship Program. And let's dig in there. We can go more specific, but let's first at a general level, if you could wave a wand and change anything about the way life is structured, uh, what might that look like? Oh man, I guess at the most fundamental level, the thing that motivates me more than anything else is freedom in all of its forms. Um, so not only political freedom and, and things like that, but I mean, even just freedom from like your own bullshit, you know, 
shame, guilt, expectations of others, whatever it might be that you feel kind of keeps you unfree. And so I guess at a fundamental level, any area where the use of force is being employed, I want to, I want to replace it with voluntarism. I want to replace it with something peaceful. I want to replace it with competitive attempts to solve problems, prevent problems, um, serve needs. And I think the further you can go, like any human would tell you, I mean, you can bring it down to a micro level as a parent, right? If you have, I've got kids, if you've got kids and they're you're dealing with an issue, would you rather use a violent solution or a peaceful one? Whether or not you think there's ever room for violence, everyone would always say, I prefer a peaceful one. And I want to take that as far as it can go. And I think it's really easy to like let ourselves off the hook. So in terms of just the world at large, I'm always looking for ways where you can replace with voluntary choice market actions, anything that's got some form of coercion involved in it. That kind of motivates me. Yeah. Where does that take place as you think about K through 12? And as you think about higher education, if you can wave a wand, how are those structured? Are, are they are they totally private? What are, what are people doing during their K through 12? Let, let's get into, get into some of this. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you remove, if you remove all violence from the system, uh, then taxation is no longer a viable option for funding. And so what you get is systems that, and services that have to compete for voluntary dollars. Now those can be contributions. Those can be customers paying. Those can be third parties paying like businesses paying to have a you know school set up and all of those things you see to a degree um, now, but the the market is so inefficient because no one really knows what's valuable because so much of the money is coming from a system that is about voting, which is an artificially low cost way to indulge in irrational biases. You know, if you ask people, what do you like? They'll say nice things and they'll vote for them. <laughs> I mean, this is why companies, customer discovery is more than asking people opinion polls, right? And so, you know, the education system absent all of the kind of interventions and, and market distortions, it's hard to know exactly what it would look like. It's abundantly clear that there is tremendous demand for training, for education. I mean, the fact that everyone is you know, forced to pay something like $12,000 per student per year on average for K through 12 alone, and so many still go out of their way to pay even more to do additional things with their kids or to do something else shows that like there is a there is a massive demand there. Um, and then obviously when you move into to college, you still you have all these market distortions. So I think you remove those and what you get is something really, really exciting. Now the thing that excites me is you don't need to wait, right? So I'm not going to wait around for any policy change. I'm not going to wait for people to be like, you know what, taxation is a bad idea. You know what I mean? Like I'm not worried about that. I want to look for points where the because of the lack of accountability to the market, the services are are delivered so poorly that there's still tons of room to innovate around those institutions. And you see this all across the the you know the spectrum of education. I was homeschooled myself, and we're sort of unschooling, homeschooling our our own children. I um, mean, in the college range, everything from things like Praxis to you know coding boot camps. There's there's a, a massive world of things emerging to compete with those sort of centrally provided services. And that's what excites me is to, is to rather than arguing about what governments ought to do, I would rather just provide alternatives to consumers and say, look, this is better. You're going to get better outcomes and allow the 
market-based alternative to win out over time. And that's kind of what, what my focus is on. So I don't know if that's too broad, if I'm not getting yeah, yeah. down to your question enough. Really, well, I'll, I'll get it in different ways. One, let's start with homeschool um, because you're experiencing it. Do you think that there will be a you know, multi-billion dollar company doing sort of like an Airbnb for homeschool? Like can homeschool be a viable alternative at scale for, you know, in the next 10 years, will there be, you know, 30% of people doing homeschool or something? How do you expect that to evolve? I think it's going to continue to grow. I'm hugely bullish on homeschooling um, as a as a market. So when I grew up homeschooling, it was borderline illegal. I think it was when my parents started doing it. My mom was a certified teacher, so she was okay at the time. And it was pretty much only like people doing it for religious reasons. Today, here where I live in Charleston, South Carolina alone, which is not like a large homeschool community, there's like three or four different very loose networks of homeschooling. There's kind of the like hippie, crunchy, you know, uh, homeschoolers. There's the religious Christian homeschoolers. There's the purely academic, almost elitist, like wealthy people who are doing this because they did a bunch of research and realized that this is going to make their kid get the best learning outcomes. And then there's kind of like a, a fuzzy area in between of people who are just sort of in between their kid wasn't doing well in school. They're not sure. And you have these networks and like every, it just grows so much. It, growing up, it was like, I would say I was homeschooled and people would look at me weird and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, that's so weird. Now, if anything, parents will say to us, like, like they almost feel the envious, like, man, that's cool. I wish I could do that. Right. So even the people who aren't doing it, see it as a desirable option. So I think it's a huge growth market. And I think the, even the, the term homeschooling is, is maybe a little too, has too much specificity or baggage to, to describe, I think, what's happening, this flowering of choices where kids are doing things like going to a school two, day, two half days a week that maybe doesn't have homework or going someplace that gives them a little structure or doing some combination of online or there's things like these, you know, Sudbury schools that are like these democratic free schools. And so there's this whole range of options. And the big, the pain points are, and the opportunities for, I think, startups are things like shared resources and peer groups. So when you're maybe 12 and under homeschooling, like it's just so amazing. And there's almost the downsides are so little compared to the upsides. Once kids get to be in their early teens, they really crave. And by the way, when you're younger, being in mixed age groups is really, really beneficial. It's so much better than being in age segregated groups for those kids, for their learning and all these things. Bullying basically disappears. Like it's pretty amazing. When you get into the early teens, kids not only want to be around a lot of other kids, but they, they want to be around kids in their same age range more than ever. And they want that connection. And I think for homeschoolers, that's where it's a challenge because the choices are join a big giant public school. And the kids often are like, I don't really want to do all that stuff. But like, I want to have a social group somewhere. And so creating spaces and, and the way society is, it's basically illegal for those kids to work. Companies won't hire them because of all these laws. They, they can literally have like, truancy officers following them around. If they're just hanging around the neighborhood and during a school day and they're 13, that's like not acceptable for legal and other reasons in society. And so there's nowhere for these kids to really go. They're like either alone by themselves at home or they got to join a school, which is what a lot my, my son started doing like once a week, going to a, like a once a week school just for the social aspect. I did the same thing when I was uh, 14, 15. I went to a private school for a year. So I think the opportunity to say, something like a gym membership or somewhere you've got a facility that's got a place where kids can just hang out and do different things. 
um, that are hard to do at home and that allow groups to get together. I think that's just like a, a market that's waiting to explode. The, the, the problem is it's very fragmented. Homeschoolers are very frag. It's all word of mouth. Like the distribution channels to reaching that market are incredibly difficult. And I know because Praxis customers are disproportionately homeschoolers. And so like we get them, but we get them through this concentric word of mouth as they all have like siblings and friends. And it like it has this positive loop over a long period of time. So to put your venture capitalist hat on, do you think there will be a uh, company that touches homeschool or, or uh, is it, you know infrastructure for homeschool that's a billion dollar company in the next 10 years? Or do you think it's it'll be too fragmented? Uh, yeah, I think in the next 10 years that can happen. I definitely do. I think the biggest challenge is actually branding because that's the way to get a large enough audience. You have to have a known brand that people interested in homeschooling, self-directed education are like, yeah, that's for us. And, and because of that fragmentation, the branding has to be very careful, right? You can't be strictly religious. The market's not big enough for that. You can't be strictly, you can't be hostile towards religion because then you're losing out on most homeschoolers. There's got to be some brand that encompasses the spirit and it's, it's practical, but it still has a little bit of the, some spirit to it that doesn't alienate. And I think that's going to be the tricky part, but that's changing naturally already. And is Airbnb the model here in the sense of, do you think parents who homeschool their kids would also homeschool other kids? for some of the social benefits and we could people make a living being homeschool teachers or, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a really tough question to say. So there are people that make living being homeschool teachers. Um, there is some of that. And I think that market for sort of tutors and like formal classes, there's plenty of room to grow there. But I actually think the bigger market is one for something that facilitates something more like unschooling or self-directed learning where it's like, look, what you really need is I think about the, if you've never heard of the Sudbury Valley School, I encourage you to, to go look it up. It's a really, really cool place. It's been around for a long time. And there's some others that have opened. But the main thing is it's like kids of all ages go there and they show up and they don't have to come any given day, but they can go any day and they do whatever they want all day, literally. And the, there's parents there just as like, we're here to answer questions and make sure, you know, if somebody's dying, we can do CPR. I mean, it's very run by the kids. And what that provides is like, because unfortunately, societally, we're not at a place where most people just don't want kids around uh, to, to sort of be a part of the real world. They, they're, they're like relegated to these cinder block cells and bells buzzing, telling them where to go. So giving them a place where they can sort of live free during the day, um, that's just a facility to hang out. I honestly think that is a bigger need and it reaches so many people with different learning. Some people might want to come and spend the time actually studying and others might want to goof off. So I think just like facilities alone, safe facilities where you can come and have your kids be in an environment that's largely self-directed is actually a, even though it's more radical, I think it's got a, a larger, faster growth potential than something that's like, we offer structured classes and we connect you with tutors. Yeah. And what's the business that like, like what sort of tools would help self-directed learning? You know, I think about, it doesn't take much these days. So you put a, you put a kid in a resource rich environment, which today is like, you're hooked up to the internet. That's, that's half of it. But I think things like, think about the kid, the things that kids are really interested in right now. 
uh, YouTube, everybody wants to be a, have a YouTube channel, which some people think is like depressing. And there's some poll about, you know, Chinese kids want to be astronauts and American kids want to YouTube. Oh, isn't this terrible? I don't think that's terrible at all. I think it's rational and I think it's kind of exciting. I mean, when was the last time NASA did anything to get a kid excited for, for one thing? <laughs> and just the idea that they want to have independence. They want to own their information, their brand, their voice, their ideas, talk to an audience. Like they, they look up to YouTubers for a reason. So I think Imagine like WeWork. I think WeWork is more the model than Airbnb. Not to speak on WeWorks, you know, everybody has different opinions on whether it's sustainable. But I think the idea of a facility where it's like you've got studios where kids can do video editing and things like that and they can, you know, book those out and rent them. You've got places where things that are harder to do at home, even like music, like it's hard to crank up the electric guitar and play with a band in the middle of the day in a neighborhood um, where there's all these coordination costs. So, or things like, any kind of equipment or tooling that's expensive or hard to maintain in one place, you know, leather shops and, and crafty type stuff, like the kind of things that kids are into at that phase anyway, that have lower barriers to entry, but that have sort of facilities or equipment that are inconvenient in a household and that have a benefit to being done in groups. I think that's a, a phenomenal model. And if you add, if you just like add some co-working for adults. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I always wish my, I love it when my kids work around me when they're just around the world of commerce and exposed to it. So I could see like a WeWork that's got some sort of, here's like kids hang out area and do whatever they want. Not a daycare, but like a, a sort of a free range kids section. Um, <laughs> and you can choose to work in there as an adult or not. Could be pretty awesome. Yeah. So I feel like Teal and others uh, helped sort of really popularized this idea, I don't know, over a decade ago, that education is, is this big bubble. Particularly, I think they're focused on university education, but, you know, probably everywhere. Um, and you, of course, launched the Teal Fellowship. Things like on college were also, you know, bigger at the time. I'm curious, how has the conversation evolved in the last 10 years or last decade since that conversation, you know, really got popularized? How has the conversation evolved how has sort of policy or, or any movements uh, or, you know, evolved, how has the world of education evolved since and, and where should it be? <laughs> um, but when we start, maybe what's happened. Perhaps. Yeah. So, you know, I'll start in 2003. I was in college and I had been homeschooled, as I said, and I'm paying my way through school. I'm, I'm working for a small business owner three days a week and I'm turning around and spending the money on these classes. And I went to a big generic crappy state university, just like practical, cheap. Let's I got to get this degree because everyone says I have to. And I remember feeling like this is just so weird. I remember looking around at a bunch of classmates who were hungover and nobody wanted to be there. Teachers didn't want to be there. Everybody cheered when class is canceled, right? What, what other good do you pay for ahead of time? And then you're happy when it's not delivered, right? Because clearly the information is not what people are buying. And so this, I had this moment, this clicked, and I didn't have a name for it at the time until later, you know, reading things like Brian Kaplan and, and, and other economists I looked around and I thought, all I'm really buying is a piece of paper that says, I'm on average likely to be no worse than everybody else in this room. And I was like, holy crap, that's, that's like a pretty, that's kind of a ripoff, right? And so at the time I had this big idea, like I put together this crappy PowerPoint uh, that I dug, I found it years ago. I'd forgotten about it, like education revolution. We're going to have some place that the, the separation from the world of commerce and being a productive, independent adult and the world of like learning is such a weird separation. It's so unnatural. That's not like the way that you transition and learn things in, in life. And I thought like if these were more integrated and I didn't know what to do with it. 
And at the time, nobody was saying things like bubble in education. There were no MOOCs. You couldn't even do video streaming online at the time. And so I didn't really know what to do with it. Fast forward to about seven years ago, six years ago, early 2013, when I had spent the intervening decade working in some nonprofits, working with a lot of college students, and then working with a lot of employers um, who had built successful businesses. And I got the idea for Praxis and we launched it and it was like every single customer I talked to, I mean, the first couple of classes were like six people. I mean, it was just like bootstrapping, grinding. And it was like me personally selling every one of these individuals on the idea that like, you don't, I'm only asking for a year. If you don't want and you want to go back to college, fine. Like it's a net cost of zero because you're going to get paid. We're going to get you placed, all this stuff. And it was like every kid that I talked to didn't like college, but they were really scared of any deviation. Now, over the intervening six years today, when we talk with people at Praxis, every kid doesn't like college and they're completely like, yeah, like I, I, I'm probably not going to go. Like I understand. Let me just figure out if Praxis is a good fit, but like it doesn't take a lot to sell me on the idea that I don't need to go to college. In fact, in fact, for young people, the burden of proof is starting to almost flip, which is like the rational thing. You would expect a four-year, six-figure expenditure to require a higher justification (laughs) in terms of its outcomes than something less. Parents have not come around yet. Some have. Parents of younger kids. The younger, each new sort of, each year that passes, it gets easier. But I think for parents, it has nothing to do with career outcomes. It, it, the, the landscape is very much stuck in. We're, we're so new to the age that we live in that here's, here's my craziest observation about all this. It is so easy, shockingly easy to win great jobs and opportunities, even jobs that say they need degrees or need experience. None of them do. None of those criteria are true. So easy if you go out of the box and just do something a little creative and a little different. You can spend one week of hard work and get more results in terms of winning a job than four years in almost any college for any degree if you want it bad enough. So that begs the question or leads to the question, why do so few do it? And I think it's the draw of normal. Being a normal failure is less scary than being an abnormal success or being abnormal and increasing your odds of success. And I think to me, that speaks to how early we are in the information age, because we still think like abnormality is a threat to the community in a world where like, you've got to have these kind of status signals and like stick to the norms. We're not used to the fact that we're in, we live in the long tail world abnormal is rewarded. Niching down and finding your strange niche of being like a, a yoga instructor who does uh, you know, blacksmithing on YouTube, that's like a way to dominate the world now, right? Being deviation and, and standing out because you now can convey so much more information, it's so much more valuable, but I think we're still adjusting socially to the idea that deviating from the norm, we think that's more dangerous and it's actually safer than just sort of following the dominant path. And so you're seeing like parents are having a hard time. Their whole paradigm has been, I need to be thought of as a good parent by other parents, which is like one of the greatest motivators that of, for all parents. And we lie to ourselves and say it's other reasons, but it's very hard to combat that, that desire to be thought well of. And I've spent my whole life thinking of that in terms of college. And then I go to the cocktail party. If I say, yeah, John's not going to college, he dropped out. No matter how successful and happy John is, I feel like a loser in the eyes of my friends. Whereas I say, oh, Sally, she just got a great scholarship and she's in college. She could be utterly depressed 
and hating her life. And I will feel good about the fact that my friends will think highly of me. That's a very hard thing to overcome. And so the norms around those things are, are changing very slowly. And I think that's kind of why we haven't had the big explosive collapse of any bubble. What's it going to take for that bubble to collapse or those norms to really change? It could be something exogenous, like a big economic shock or, um, you know, something to that effect. I, I kind of suspect that it's, I'm just, I'm always wary of being sensational. I suspect that it will look more like what happened with the news industry where there was never like a moment where we're like, remember the day when we woke up and all the newspapers collapsed, but they, all the little ones pretty much did collapse or they became blogs or online. And it was like the minute that the internet made blogging and and independent journalism possible, the writing was on the wall and everyone kept saying that. And it did happen. The top tier newspapers stuck around because they had enough brand power. And then like the really distributed independent stuff flourished all that like dead weight middle regional stuff died out. And I think that's exactly what's happening and will happen to the university system. But I think it's just going to happen a little bit more gradually than most people expect. I, I think generational shift um, is going to be the, the key and that takes time, but it's possible that there's, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if something happened really quickly. I just never, I'm always reticent to make claims like that because usually disruption looks fast in retrospect, but it never feels fast in the present. Yeah, totally. I mean, and so how do you see it playing out in the future? You know, is it that the top universities remain the Harvard and Stanford's, but the middle ones just sort of bottom out? What what will take its place? Yeah, I I think so. So you know, universities are so complex. They're such a complex bundle of goods that it's it's very hard to like exactly know what people are buying at any given university. And even if you ask them, they you don't necessarily get a, a clear straight answer. So. Universities where it's truly a consumption good and people are just buying a fun summer of drinking and their parents feel fine paying for it. Like just go spend more time growing up because you're not ready for anything. And I don't care what you do. Just go do it somewhere. Right. Like there's a market for that. That will continue, whether it looks like a university or it looks more like some campus type environment that has all the social stuff, but none of the classes or whatever. um, I think that's going to continue. Um, I think that some of the elite schools, places where it's like, our family has been here for forever. There's some networks, there's some, you know, for parents who have the money, it's like, we just want you to go because that's what we do in this family, right? Like some people have, uh, some people are like that with the military. There's always going to be some market for that. I think the elite schools, um, they have a lot of other things that they, you know, that they can do that make it so that if you get in the signal of being selected, if they can still keep that as strong as it's been for certain jobs, like working at certain, you know, consulting firms or whatever, they will probably be fine. They will adjust. I think it's really like, and and I, and I suspect the very pragmatic, low cost, like vocational schools and very applied sort of no bullshit type things where it's like, I want to learn one specific thing. Here's the way to learn it. Certainly if there's legal requirements, like becoming a dentist or whatever, those will stick around. I think it's the giant middle section of both public and private, like generic bachelor's degree in communications, business, marketing, like all of those areas, there's just no case to be made at all from an employment standpoint 
from a human capital building, like this, the, the human capital building is null, is absolutely zero. In fact, I would argue that it's negative. You learn habits and mindsets that make you less valuable in the market than if you spent even half that time in the market. And those mindsets being like, um, you know, not creativity, just doing what you're told. Exactly. Like learning, you know, following rules. I mean, even just the structure, the artificial structure of your schedule. The thing we found so often with people joining Praxis, especially if they have been in college, it's actually harder for them to learn to create their own structure and schedule. And with the increase of opportunities for freelancing, remote work, that is more important than ever. The ability to just know how to manage your day without someone imposing a schedule on you. Um, so even just some of those habits, like the social rewards in college are for things that are often self-destructive and like not good for your professional life or healthy balance. So the, you know, the things that sort of win on a college campus, both in and out of the classroom are not usually very good uh, for winning in the marketplace. They don't translate too well. Yeah. And, and so, and, and the signaling component is for those degrees, especially people argue that it's, that it still has signaling power and they'll show correlative data that says, look, people with this have higher earning power. I, I don't buy that at all because if, if you say to me that, look, like it or not, employers still care about this because see, they're listing it as a requirement on this job post. And I can say, yeah, but I saw a kid with no degree who took two hours to put together a, th- a five slide pitch deck for them and emailed it to them. And they never once asked about his education and he got the job. They didn't even know. So they're not even taking it seriously if you show them something better. So that proves to me that it's just lack of imagination that makes people assume that that's doing legwork. No one's like, oh, you have a degree. I'll give you a paycheck. So the signaling component's falling away. So what does that leave? The social component? I mean, you got football games and parties. You don't really need to register and pay for those. I think it's, it's the parents are the last thing that's keeping a lot of those you know, together and kids' unwillingness or inability to break from their parents at that age of 18, 19, you know, they're, they're, they need that approval and financial support often. Um, I would argue because they've been crippled by a, a life in the, uh, the cages of school for the previous much of their life. But, um, but I think it's coming down. I think it's coming down bit by bit. And I think it's incredibly exciting. Yeah. How do you think ISA's uh, income share agreements are going to, to change this if at all? Yeah. I mean, I love markets and everything and I love options and everything. And like, you know, I love the idea of securitizing future income streams and, and, you know, taking, getting, getting training in that. I think what it does is it, the more widespread they get, it just forces institutions to deliver something that's of market value. And I think the more places adopt something like ISAs, we'll see really quickly how many places are doing something that actually makes their students more valuable in the world. And I think it's a pretty small number because if you're only getting paid, if I'm getting paid and if I'm getting paid a certain amount of money that I didn't believe I was capable of when I came in, you've got to be doing something to me, enhancing my ability or enhancing my ability to sell my pre-existing ability somehow. And if you're not delivering that, you're not going to make money. And so I think ISAs are going to be like, I would say they're, they're in a little bit of a like, ooh, this is kind of a cool hot market. I think they're going to go like this. And then I think they're going to really level off while people try to figure out which ones actually pay. Because the assumption that any training program makes sense to have an ISA 
uh, is not true. And we don't really know yet which ones actually are going to create long-term results that justify the, the structure of ISAs. So I'm really excited to see them proliferate. I think it just makes those it, it weeds out the institutions. They'll have to either rebrand and say, no, 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 we're not about careers, right? Which is what professors always love to say when you talk about, well, it's about enlightenment. Great. Sell enlightenment then and stop selling careers. That's a separate product. People will pay for that. People love to pay money to go, you know, spend a time talking about ideas at some awesome weekend seminar or something. Like there's a whole market for that, but separating those things that I think separating like the credential from the classroom, the employment credential from the classroom is the healthiest thing for both. Cause it's a terrible learning environment, by the way, when nobody's there for the knowledge, like I've guest lectured at college classes before and it's so depressing. Like no one wants to hear me talk. They're just there waiting to get that. I was that they checked off that they attended versus speaking at a conference during the summer that no credits offered for that kids yeah. voluntarily come to that's a great experience because they're there for the ideas so i think this separation will will um you know this unbundling will be healthy all around and isa should play a part in that yeah so when you say about markets and everything but i guess i guess what you're saying is yeah for people who are offering enlightenment they should just sell that and you wouldn't have an isa on that because you know it's unclear that that leads to higher like people just pay cash yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can pay cash and you can have scholar. I mean, there's all kinds of nonprofits that do that now that your summer seminars on every topic imaginable yeah. that kids can go to for free if they really want to, because there are philanthropists that want people to be able to go. There are people that want to pay. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's the, the claim that the human capital you are going to gain will directly enhance your earning potential. That's the claim that people have clung on to the longest with college because they're like pretty much everything else has fallen away. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you still need it to get a job. And now that it's more and more clear that that's only true where legally required, it's like, okay, you better have something that you bring to the table that, that can prove that you're going to enhance my earning potential. And an ISA is almost like table stakes at this point. If you're looking, I mean, it is for college alternative programs, right? Because customers are ready. They want to know that you have skin in the game. As college's religious belief starts to, you know, our, our belief in it falls away, it will be the same thing. Like, if you're going to claim that you're going to make me better, you got to have, you got to show me that you're incentivized to do so, you know? Yeah. I, I keep wondering what's it going to take for parents to change their, their minds on sort of the sanctity of college? Because it, it does compare it to, to religion um, or to church. And yeah, it's so deep rooted. Yeah, it needs to be sort of in a collective act. I don't know. It, it, I guess the question is, you know, do, yeah, what needs to be true for that to happen beyond what you've already talked about too is what do you think about people who are trying, trying to make, you know, different kinds of, like Minerva, different, are those incremental or are those truly disruptive or all schools trying to do that? Okay, so what about just like different kinds of institutions? Yeah. I, I never like to sort of speak on like what a market ought to be doing as a whole. I want to see as many things as possible, but I do for like me, I don't get excited enough about, Hey, we're a better college or in the world of signaling. Hey, let's, let's create and sell a better signal. What I get excited about is the radical individualization, right? Which is the whole concept behind crash is be your own credential. The idea that this is something that's possible for the first time in history. And I think saying, Hey, you can have a cheaper, better, more efficient third party stamp of approval than we used to have. Isn't radical enough. I think you can go further and say, you can be your own credential and differentiate yourself at a fundamental level where the individual is the fundamental information unit 
And, and which is what all of this is about is information, right? Most of the market is information. I mean, even the goods that we, you know, prices and things are information, but the things we believe about goods, their subjective value is information. And saying that rather than having that you are the fundamental unit, you own your information and you can demonstrate to borrow from the crypto world through proof of work. Here's what I have built, what I can do, what I'm capable of. Let me show you in a way that's incredibly hard to fake. So it's a costly signal. It's genuine. Rather than asking you to trust a third party, which has all kinds of ways that it can be gamed. I mean, you think about the way that degrees are granted, like nobody even knows what goes on. Nobody, you submit a paper and one person looks at it and they give you a grade and you do this hundreds of times. And then you get some stamp that says something happened behind closed doors. And we're just going to try to like trust that this works because there's been some correlation in the past you know, objectives and methods. I'm glad those exist. Those will continue to proliferate. And I think that's largely good. It moves things in the right. Oh, something independent of any institution. Then you really have to flip the burden onto those institutions to say, well, what are you going to do to make me better that I can't do on my own? Let's get into uh, credentialing a bit. Cause you know, we didn't change on Twitter. I, mean, I was talking about peer to peer credentialing is the future. And you're like, you don't even need peer to peer. You can do it self. I guess I'm, I'm curious what you think about peer-to-peer credentialing, and then I'm, I'm curious how self-credentialing is, is you know, more powerful because obviously the bias is on, uh, you, know, you know, people are going to you know, vouch for themselves. Yeah, so we, and we, may be, we may be talking past each other here, so I, I'd love to hear, what do you mean by peer-to-peer credentialing? I've sure. only heard that a few times. Sure, so what I, what I mean by that is basically, you know, what Harvard is, is it's a credential that says, you know, I don't know how many people they have per class, but you know, 5,000 people or whoever uh, amount are, are really impressive. But if you were to tell me, Isaac, here are the most five impressive people I've ever worked with in my life, or people, you know, I think have the most potential in the world, uh, based on people I've, I've ever met, I, w- I would take that higher than a Harvard credential. And you, you have that list in your head. Everyone has that list in their head, uh, but that's not legible on the internet anywhere. So I'm like, oh, we're leaving a lot of value on the table here by not, you know, having that formally. So I, I'm thinking a lot about that. If there's a way to make that legible. Yes. Okay. So I love that. I, we're very much on the same page. I would see that as a, a slightly more specific subset of what I mean when I say be your own credential. So I almost see it as out there in the world, This you've got me, Inc. You've got the product of you and you need a sales and a marketing effort. And I would say the marketing effort is sort of Here's my body of work. Here's stuff I've built. Here's my brand. You've got to be findable by the right people. So like I give an example all the time of a kid I met who said he's really, really interested in financial literacy and he's passionate about it. And I Googled him and I didn't find a single thing anywhere about it. And I said to him, if I happen to know a guy who is writing a book on financial literacy and looking for somebody to, to edit it as a project to get started, I would never know to, to think of you because you're, you, you need to market yourself. You need to share your work. If you're listening to podcasts on financial literacy, share your podcast notes in a blog post, write about it publicly, let it be findable, right? That's part of your brand, your marketing. I would say what you're talking about is the sales layer on top of that, right? Which is like individual people need to have specific beliefs about you that enhances your value so that when I go to do my due diligence, uh, and I go ask specific people, they've got something to say, or I run into them, right? And so uh, one of the ways we, do, we have you know, job seekers, we always encourage them to do sort of the shotgun and the sniper, which is really marketing and sales. So you, you blast out to the world, here's what I'm up to, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm interested in. If you know of any opportunities, let me know. So that like, 
you never know. There could be one, two degrees removed from you that didn't know about it because you were keeping it to yourself. So let it be known. That's like the marketing broadcast. And then the sales process is identify the top four or five opportunities, do something specific for them, target them, but don't just give it to them in a one-to-one context. Also do it like tweet it at them too. Hey, I made this for you. I'd love to work for you. And you'll see like other people will come on and vouch for you and say, oh, this person's great. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. They did this thing. And so I think kind of capturing like your reputation in a broader sense, it's not just what you've done, but who you've worked for, who will vouch for you. Um, I think those, to me, those sort of play into the same concept of owning your brand and, and where it, where it gets really exciting is when you combine sort of objective, verifiable data about, let's say, I worked here for this period of time or I did something with this person with a narrative that you can weave around it, right? So if it's like, hey, and be very transparent about it because in this age of information everywhere, you can't escape. You won't win by trying to hide it, by trying to to tell a fake story that says, you know, well, the reason I got fired from this job was blah, 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 blah. It's better to own it and say, here are the facts. Now here's the narrative around those facts. Uh, and I think you have this ability to like, you know, unlike a credit score where it's like somebody else imposes it on you and you can't escape it. You get to take some of the objective facts and you get to take some narrative and you get to own it in a way that you've never had control over before. Uh, and so I would say who your relationships, you, relationships you have with people are a big part of that. I mean, I go look on Twitter and like, people that comment and engage with you on Twitter is like a really interesting indicator of people, you know, what kind of person you are. So yeah, I think tying in the peer to peer, the making legible your personal one-to-one relationships is a, is a, is something that's very powerful. And LinkedIn used to have that a bit. Now everyone's just connected to everybody all the time. And so the, the weight of that has dropped. So let's, let's, let's again, put our venture, venture capitalist hats on. Uh, in the next decade, what other you know, billion-dollar companies do you think will emerge uh, in the education space broadly? So, if you're, you know, running a, a VC fund focused on the future of education, what, what are the types of companies that you expect to back that you think will be, you know, uh, unicorn companies? And because, you know, I, I, I'm sure you believe Crash will be one of them. Maybe paint the vision, vision for 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 Crash as well. Yeah. So, as I said, to me, it's all like I get really excited about information and individuals owning their information. And so the idea of a platform like Crash, the sort of big crazy vision is this is where your professional life lives and you have a a control over the forward-facing information as well as like a dashboard to manage the kind of process of actively utilizing that information to go and win jobs and win opportunities. And like, you know, you're, you're managing your goals for your career. You're managing your, um, you know, what are you trying to achieve next? You're managing your job hunt when you're on the job hunt with your, you know, baked in job hunt CRM and, and you're allowing sort of professional me to, to be on this platform and to create this marketplace so that rather than say I'm hiring for a bunch of business development reps, Instead of going out there, posting a job, posting somewhere, which is are almost universally badly written because it's nobody's full-time job to write compelling job postings, yes, no, or even a higher yes, no decision. Ultimately, it's what I love without even worrying about the whole front end of the funnel because you're able to, to sort of access all of this rich information boiled down to the most compact signals that can connect you to those opportunities really, really quickly on both sides of the market. So like... 
I would love to have sort of the global talent marketplace, um, like active marketplace, not just a static place where your information resides and maybe people can, can you know, search it and stuff. Like I think LinkedIn is, is uh, which is incredibly valuable. I'm not, dis- <laughs> as much as everyone hates LinkedIn, it's incredibly valuable. But I think having a, really like a reputation marketplace because um, that's ultimately what you're, what you're buying. I mean, only two things matter, your ability to create value and your ability to prove it. And that marketplace where this is your, your you know, value proving ground, um, that's what I'm trying to build. In terms of other companies that I think would be you know, massive in this space, I don't want to like just get too repetitive or sound too vague, but I, I really, I can't stop thinking about how much in this information rich age that we're still learning how to deal with that there's all these stresses of like going out there into the world and engaging in this constant stream of information and having this brand and reputation and all this stuff. And loneliness is like the single greatest thing that young people that I talk with, I mean, they're, they're incredibly lonely, like across the board. Basically, if you're like under 30, loneliness is very high on your list of things that you're struggling with. And this blew me away when I started to discover this. I don't know. I think, I mean, I have a couple things that I think contribute to it. I think the fact that most of the time, most young people are in, uh, first of all, their life is more structured than it's ever been. The number of hours in, in formal instruction, after school homework, after school programs. So they're kind of like in autopilot mode almost all the time. And they don't know how to be alone because they've never had to be very, very little. So it's, very, it's a very big struggle to like just be alone and not have programs fed to you all the time. And then they're kind of always in these artificial prefabricated social environments. And once those end, they don't know how to go and create a social environment on their own. And so they do the easy thing in the moment, which is pop up Instagram or whatever, which is great. And I think it's makes us more connected and I'm not on the whole negative about these things, but it definitely relieves just enough of the pressure that you don't go and do the extra work to try to like get out there and forge some other kind of relationship. I think the fact that religion is almost, you know, gone, most people don't go to church. Where else do you go? I think about this because my wife and I, we both grew up going to church and we met there and we got married very young. And I look at young people now who are at the age I was when I got married or many years later. And if they're not into like drinking and partying, I truly don't know where they go to like find a mate, for example, or even friends. Cause like if you don't go to church and you don't go to like bars and stuff, there's this huge gap. So all of that to say, I think anything that facilitates hard to replicate in real life experiences Again, that's very hard to, 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 to nail and to scale. But I feel like if you do, there's just something there. There's like a floodgate waiting to explode there. This kind of loneliness issue. So like communities, like real in-person communities, facilitating that is really interesting because everybody says they want to work remote. Everybody, all young people. But they also say that they're perpetually lonely all the time. I don't know exactly how that gets solved, but that's something that I think about all the time. Like, I feel like if I were an investor, I would just be waiting for every pitch that comes to me and hoping that it was the pitch that makes me go, yes, that's the solution to this thing. Because I feel like there's something huge there that's, that's waiting to, to take off. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I'm curious how you square that. with Because sort of, I, I, like you, am really into 
markets. Um, we also you, you talked about how you know the individualization of everything. Uh, why don't you get into what you mean by that? You also said that you know why is it is a trigger word for, for you? But what do you get into what you mean by those, those concepts? And then we'll you know bring it back to sort of community. Yeah, yeah. We we is a trigger word for me. Although I'm sure I say it uh, sometimes as well. Collectivism is an easy shortcut sometimes. But no, what I mean by that is like and this is part of the whole learning to deal with the information world where your reputation can become this thing that's completely alien to you. That's like, and so you feel like you got to maintain this reputation on, let's say social media. And you have to go out and say things like, we need to solve poverty. We need to solve whatever. We need more of this. And it's like, none of that means anything. What can you do to improve your own life and the lives of those around you? Can you offer something, build something that entices people to live in a way that you think will make them better off and that they do too because they voluntarily gave you their money. And if you're not doing that, I don't give a damn about all this we stuff that we should do this, we should spend more on this and we should spend less on, none of that matters. Like go build it, right? So I love markets and actually putting things into the real world and saying, if, if, if my theory about what we ought to do is correct, then I should be able to build a business that can win, right? And if not, then I got to go back to the drawing board. And I love, I love bringing it back to like the realm of action, what's within my control. But in terms of like markets and, you know, lack of community, I think it goes the other way around. I think anywhere you see free association and frankly, commerce, you have an environment more conducive for community and connection than anywhere where you see things run in an institutional or certainly a political manner. So you take things like, take a simple example in a small town. Say you've got a large national store, Walmart wants to build a store in a town. Now you bring in, you you have no politics and what you're going to have is, let's say I live next to my neighbor and let's say he owns a small mom and pop store and I shop there and it's okay, but it's high price and bad selection and we're friends. And then Walmart comes into town. I start, start shopping at Walmart. Now, he and I are still friends, and we probably never talk about that. And he may or may not be like, hey, are you still shopping at my store? But we're, the market has this ability to just be like, you know, we, we can go out and do our anonymous transactions, and we can peacefully coexist. But let's say politics gets involved, and there's a referendum that has to be passed in order for Walmart to move in. Now, he's going to put a sign in his yard that says, ban Walmart. And if I'm like, well, I love Walmart. It's got cheap goods, and I'm trying to save money for my family. Then I'm going to put in a sign that says, bring in Walmart. And now we're enemies. And now we can't be friends anymore because we had to put it up to a vote. We all had to fight about it instead of like, let me shop where I want, let you do what you want, right? And I think commerce has this amazing civilizing force. And the fact that we have choice, there is no genuine community without choice. Being forced into a a community or a group, I think creates the atomization, creates the retreat within, um, which is part of what I'm getting to with school. The number of kids who are painfully lonely sitting in classes full of other kids is off the charts. Uh, And I think allowing kids to like explore and figure out how to make friends and and sort of get out there in a more market-based way, or even go get jobs and interact in the, in the broader world with people of different ages. I think that helps solve the problem. So to me, it's like, you can only be a part of an individual if you are first or a part of a community, if you are first able to manage yourself as an individual. And so like having the freedom to do that is, is sort of a precondition rather than in conflict with the idea of, of overcoming loneliness. Yeah. I mean, how would you respond to a viewpoint that said, hey, yeah, maybe there's some truth to that, but maybe there's also truth to the opposite, which is uh, because we have all this freedom, you know, we're endlessly, you know, optimizing and actual, um, you know, 
permission to do, let's say you were marketing and growing up, that was very internet connected. You actually didn't do that. Or basically that, that markets and um, is somehow sort of, or the proliferation of markets is sometimes at odds with communities because uh, the more independent you are, the, the less you need a community. Um, and the more you know, dependent you are, the more likely you are to feel connected to somebody else who's you know, taking care of you or is dependent on you. You're interdependent. Yeah. So the, ex- the greater the extent of the market, the greater the interdependence. So you take a, you take a country or a community that's completely self-sufficient. Um, how connected are they going to be to the next door community, right? If anything, they're probably going to be hostile. Right? What is it? I think it was, I think it was Bastiat that said, if goods don't cross borders, armies will. The more that you are mutually interdependent on one another, markets breed trust and, and interdependence, right? Like when I go to a, in, in an economy that has at least a somewhat thriving market in groceries, um, that's not completely uh, overwrought with intervention. When I go to buy fish at the store, I never even think to check if it's poisoned, right? Because I have like trust in the, the market process that I'm engaged, with, engaged in. And that allows that allows a very like relaxed carefree environment where people can connect much easier. If you go to a very corrupt or heavily regulated country, you know, everybody's like holding money up to the light to see if it's forged. Nobody trusts each other. People are bolting their doors all the time, right? An area where the market is more robust, the interdependence is actually more. So retreating from markets, what it does, markets raise the cost of conflict with other market participants. And so when you, when you reduce the number of other people you're participating in the market with, you are essentially lowering the cost of getting into fights with those people um, directly or indirectly. And so I, I think it's just the opposite. I think it's a, a tremendous civilizing force, um, you know, both on the micro and the macro level. So if I would say, hey, I, I think markets bring us together a lot, a lot globally, certainly. Um, but there are some instances in which, you know, it was likely, you know, 50 years ago or some period of time ago where you were, you know, more likely to have more time with your neighbor, you know, more community with your neighbor, people that are living you. And maybe you're more likely to be very young and, and be content with that. Uh, and now there's sort of endless choice or endless hyper optimization, which can have some, you know, negative community effect. Like, it, it, to me, it's not a surprise that some, you, you'll be richer, but more lonely, <laughs> or you, you'll get the thing you want, but you might be, uh, you know, there might be some adverse effects. Would you say, Hey, there might be some adverse effects, but you know, overall it's just way, way better. Um, or, uh, you know, rather be free and lonely than, than more dependent and less lonely. Or would you say that, no, no, no I, I dispute the premise that, uh, loneliness is no correlation to, you know, yeah. So there's, there's sort of a couple, a couple answers to that, that I would, I would give one is I don't, I always want to be careful about assuming that markets are the cause of a given thing because markets are so distorted here. So take the, the sort of, you know, drive into your neighborhood and you don't connect with your neighbors or whatever. I think a lot of that is a result of highly distorted markets and things like land use uh, subsidies to highways. And like, there's all kinds of things that sort of incentivize a certain structure, even of neighborhoods or cities in the way that they're planned in the way that zoning restrictions, building restrictions. Um, so I think you get things like people coming in as, you know, San Francisco is a great example. You can't build any new houses. So the prices keep going up. So more people come in that are rich and have social lives that exist elsewhere, not in the city. And then you move in and you have these neighborhoods where nobody connects with each other. That's actually a cause of an artificial imposition on the market. So it's always hard to know when and where those are, um, you know, how much is sort of 
market driven versus distortions. But I would also, I would say that the key question is always this. I think these are like the most important three words when you analyze any of this stuff is compared to what? So you can take a given state of affairs and say, I don't like this state of affairs, but compared to what? And so if it's like, here I am, I'm in my neighborhood and I'm not super friendly with many of my neighbors. I don't feel like anybody's you know, connected. They're all just busy working or whatever. I don't like that compared to what? What am I imagining as being an alternative and how would I bring that about? And when you propose anything that's like, okay, well, let's ultimately, I don't want to put too blunt a point on it, but this is ultimately what backs all policy. Let's get some guys with guns to threaten everybody if they don't do this or do that. I can't think of a scenario in which I'm like, yeah, that that seems to make things better in the long term for everybody. This is a good incentive structure. And even the ability for someone to have that power, it attracts so much danger and so much, the people who are the most nefarious will by definition be attracted to it and will be best at gaming it. And so I feel like there are things in the world that suck. Scarcity sucks. Disease sucks. There are things that just are hard to deal with. But having a system in which people can voluntarily try to figure out what way they want to deal with those best is going to result in better outcomes than saying, let's just create like a little monopoly over here uh, and let whoever is capable of wresting control of that monopoly run everything. I think that's going to be an inferior way of going about it. So it's not a, you know, I think we just be careful of the nirvana fallacy that like, well, I don't like this. So if government got involved, it would be better. I I feel like that's uh, dangerously naive. Totally. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, definitely not arguing for any government intervention here. I, I, I've had sort of this pet theory of, you know, get your, um, you know, market thinking out of my tribes and your tribal thinking out of my markets. And gotcha. by that would it, yeah, it's sort of, you know, if we're going on a camping trip, you know, we're not going to have division of labor specialists, like, you know. Uh, uh, could, we could be playing semantics, but I would argue that you would. Like my definition of markets is like any, any voluntary exchange, which is like any kind of arrangement, you know, like, okay, we're all going to share our food on this trip. Like as long as there's no force involved, I would consider that a product of the market, but that, but that's maybe just a definitional thing. Right. You know, I guess what I mean is um, like what we wouldn't do is, you know, say uh, that I'm a, you know, way better performer than, you know, my, you know, like my, my your parent, you don't give allowance to your kids based on, you know, the rate of, I guess maybe to some market fundamentals, but Hey, one kid washed dishes way better than the other. So they, you know, just should deserve, you know, their productivity rate should be this versus, versus this. Like, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would say that an outcome like, you know, oh, you're going to get paid by your marginal productivity, blah, blah. That's not the market. The market is the bucket, right? The market is the process, which is just right. an open process. And that's a, that's a mechanism that tends to emerge under certain market conditions, right? So that, that comes back to sort of Coase's theory of the firm. And again, it's all about information costs and transaction costs. When you get to a point where the information costs get too high to sort of informally regulate those things based on just fairness, norms, whatever. You have to start doing things like creating contracts and doing things that as you get greater extent. Now, those bring their own inefficiencies. And so the, the greater the ability to overcome those, the better. So I would just say like, rather than to predetermine which arrangements apply to which situations, if you just allow an open process, you will have them emerge in a way that's very rational. Like n- nobody, you know, Nobody runs their family like they run a firm because they don't have to. There's, there's really high costs to running a firm in that way, but they just happen to be the, the agency costs 
happen to be lower than the transaction costs of running it a different way. And that's changing as well, obviously, which is why we're having more freelance and all this stuff. So it's, that's what I'm always leery of is, is I guess the idea that any one of us can know where one arrangement works better than another without allowing an open process of discovery for that to happen. You know what I mean? And that, and that process is what I would refer to as the market, not any particular outcome of it. Talk a little bit about your idea behind creating companies that incentivize the wrong people to do the right things for the wrong reasons. So I used to, um, you know, sort of like my, my passion in life has always been kind of like expanding my own sense of freedom and, and freedom broadly. And I used to think that politics was a way to do this. And I was dis- you know, disabused of this notion. And I, I remember I, I started studying public choice theory. And when I worked in politics, I started observing in, in practice how inefficient this was. And I'll never forget, I came across this quote by Milton Friedman, where he said, the solution to our problems is not to elect better people. If we do, they'll just do, you know, they'll, they'll either get kicked out of office or they'll end up becoming bad people or do bad things. The solution is to create an environment where it's politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. And I think anytime you are trying to do anything in the world, whether it's a business or otherwise, where you're like, look, if only people were different than they were, this would be great. You're, you're fighting a battle that's not only you're not going to win, like people can change, but you have to create the incentive structure that makes them want to on their own without telling them you're bad unless you become different. You're, you're fighting a losing battle and you're going to become like a self-righteous asshole in the process uh, and probably a tyrant. And that's a very, very dangerous, it's very easy to do. And all of us sort of do it to some extent here and there. And again, this is the whole thing about this, this world of information everywhere and reputation management. It creates this weird bifurcated thing where we all feel like we're in this phase where everyone thinks we should be judged based on, or we should judge others based on whether they're good people, their intentions, and what they're trying to do. And I think that's really, really dangerous. For one, you just can't really know with any effectiveness. It can easily turn into unruly mobs. But ultimately, I just want a world that's awesome. And if I can create a bit, think, think about what would do more good for a world. Creating a business that makes it easy for really good people to do really good things. And to, you know, for the really right reasons. Well, that's really cool, but it's pretty limited in scope. But what if I could create a company that could incentivize bad people to do good things for bad reasons? That's like the most kick-ass thing you can ever imagine in terms of making the world a better place, right? And in some sense, the only way to, to determine, you know, what's creating value is the, you know, absence of interventions, the profit motive and people are willingly parting with their money and and saying, you're creating more value for me. But I think not caring so much about whether somebody is or is not a good person and whether they're doing things for a good reason on the social level, right? If it's your friend, you're like, of course, or your wife, like you don't want that. But when you're out in the world, engaging with companies that create value for you by your own definition that helps create value for the world at large and stop turning everything into this crusade where it's like, well, first we've got to figure out what this person's motives were. And then we got to try to punish them. If we think they were doing things for the people who aren't, who don't fit your definition of good to not engage and to become a, a threat. And so to me, like incentives, creating incentive structures is so important so much so that I always want to take it to the radical end. Like, okay, what, what do I want my customers to do? And can I imagine a world in which somebody that I think is not a very good person with not very good motives would still want to do this and get this outcome? And if I can try to make that world come about, it's like one of the hardest things ever. 
that's something really worth doing. That's something really worth doing. And that's what crypto, uh, or that's what got so many people excited about crypto. Yes, it's exactly. It's, it's like game theory. And yeah. it's like, let's forget about good intentions. Let's assume the worst intentions. Can we make a system robust enough to turn that into good? And, and I think that's a great heuristic to apply to any business. Like if you want to talk about a business that does social good, it's something that can do, that pull off that magic. What are examples of those kinds of businesses or, or what's one example of business that does that? Well, I mean, if you get, if you get broad enough, I actually think it applies pretty widely. So let's just take a, let's just take an example of a, a ride sharing. Let's just take Lyft. If you say to me, some random person with a car, I want them to help somebody without a car get where they need to go uh, fast and efficiently and safely. Wow. That's a really good thing. That random person with a car, they could be an asshole. doesn't matter. It doesn't really affect anything. They could be doing it for the wrong reasons to get money, to buy something that's self-destructive or whatever. It doesn't really matter if you can create an incentive structure that protects from somebody, you know, physically being violent or whatever, that, that gives the consumer ultimately the thing that they want. And that gets rewarded. And you see that reward in the form of profit because all profit is, is an indicator that someone added value to the world that didn't previously, it previously exist. They took a bundle of, of resources and capital and information and they purchased it at X price. They did something with it and sold it at Y price. And there was a difference between those. And the, and the fact that people voluntarily parted with their resources at a higher level than what the raw material was means that value was created. And so in a very broad sense, anytime value is created, you are kind of making the world a better place. You are enhan- you're enhancing people's lives based on their own definitions of, what's, of what they value, um, which you may or may not agree with. And so you could say, well, now I want to try to do something that alters what they value. And I think there's, there's some really interesting questions around how you do that. But I think you can see like there's a feedback loop where social norms and beliefs are, they shape what people value and what they seek in the market. And then what they seek in the market in turn shapes social norms and beliefs. And so like you can make certain things cool, right? By, by effectively delivering uh, something that people enjoy and that makes them happy. People's desires are largely neutral in terms of what, what, they're valuable, what they value, neutral, if not slightly beneficial. So it's like the idea that if you just give consumers what they want, I'll, we'll all be just like eating slop and descend into chaos. I think it's just stupid. Like people... They, they realize pretty quickly, wow, this is making me unhappy, right? So like trying to elevate the world, I think is best done by trying to create a peaceful, profitable business in the broadest sense of the word. What do you think is the best way to internalize externalities? Like, you know, environmental stuff, uh, other externalities? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since I've dived into this stuff back in my econ nerd days. But as a, you know, as a general rule, the easier it is to the easier it is to assign a property right to something or the easier it is to to turn something into something that you can exchange or that there's a market for the easier it is to to internalize externalities i mean when you look at all the greatest abuses of sort of negative externalities it, you start scratching the surface and it's amazing how many of them are the result of something preventing a market from developing so like back when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire in Ohio decades ago because it was all full of pollution. That was because governments passed legislation allowing companies to do that and holding them harmless 
from the thousand year old civil law that had developed that gave people the right to sue people for polluting upstream. The BP oil spill was a direct result of a policy that governments, the EPA passed that incentivized deep offshore drilling because they wanted the revenues by saying you will not be held liable for accidents. They made something that was artificially, no insurance company would want to insure that in a free market because the, 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 the risk is so high if it goes wrong. So they artificially reduced the risk, which is just exactly what happens with student loans, right? Like it's artificially reduced risk by saying, you know, you put a cap on, et cetera, you're backed by the federal government. And so often, not always, a lot of these externalities are the result of not letting markets happen. Like common law and the ability for people to sue based on damages incurred is like really, really awesome and should be really, really robust. And when things are put in place, often well-meaning, like tort reform or whatever to prevent those abuses, I think it creates these giant pockets where these things can happen and then they get taken over and turn into public policy battles, which is just a, a a fight over who gets to divvy up the spoils and that doesn't really help, you know, anybody. So the the more you can have rights and markets in these things, whether individual, collective, whatever, I think the better for, for reducing those. Talk about uh, why self-honesty is a struggle of our age. So again, this comes back to this like thing that I'm sort of on, which I'm still, it's very like half formed, but I just keep thinking about that. We're, we're babies in the information age. And so you're out there on social media, you're out there with your reputation and you're sort of in this constant stream of dialogue. And the, the way that being rewarded for saying the right things and aligning yourself with the right things, with whatever's in vogue, it's so strong. It's such a strong force that I think it makes it incredibly hard to reflect and be honest with yourself about what you actually believe and why. And so the, the desire to have the good opinion of others, which is nothing new, but the constant numerical tally of where you stand in the good opinion of others is new. And so there's this constant drive to like get that right and like win in the game of whether you're on Twitter or whatever. And that makes it incredibly hard to know what you actually want. And this is this constant thing. So like I find this, you know, I, I blog every day and I've been doing this for years and I don't have like a massive blog audience or anything, but when you start to get an audience, I think all creators have dealt with this for years, you start to face this huge conflict of like, what's me and what's me appeasing other people. And now this is not something that's unique to platinum selling artists or whatever. It's like all of us all the time. We're constantly facing the struggle of like, what am I doing for me? What actually is like me and in my essence? And I think not being good at being alone with our thoughts, not being good at sort of stepping away. And I'm not one of these like retreat from social media types. Like I'll do that from time to time. I, I love it. I gain so much more positivity than negativity, but I found that the burden of learning what I really want and separating that from what I want people to think that I want is like incredibly challenging. And, and, and as you create a brand it can be a liberating way to open up opportunities, but can also feel like a trap. So if I go out there and say, Eric, my one goal in life is to make Crash be a billion dollar company. Now I've spoken that out there and that's part of my brand. Now what if one day, a couple years down the road, I realize I don't like that model and I would like just a, a nice steady, you know, what people would call a lifestyle business. Now, if I've immersed myself in the worlds of venture capital and I've gone out there and whatever, that's like a shameful thing, right? Even though objectively it might be a great life, like 
Now I have to contend with my own brand as a force that's trying to like battle with me for my own sense of, of what I want. And so just constantly coming back. And I think I find it really healthy to do, to occasionally do things that shock people, not just for its own sake, but as a reminder to like keep the weeds from growing in and to, and, and making your identity trapped by what you've done and what you've put out there and what your social media reputation is, or like leave a platform right when you're on the top and be like, okay, I'm the king of Instagram. I'm going to quit Instagram now and only do a new platform that I'm a total noob on. Like practices like that, I think are, are increasingly important to try to stay raw and figure out what you actually want instead of just sort of like becoming the result of <laughs> dopamine hits. <laughs> like I say, Isaac Morehouse, uh, Isaac, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. For guests who want to go deeper into, into your work and to, into Crash. Probably the easiest thing is to go to isaacmorehouse.com. You can find a link to Crash. You can find a link to just all the other stuff that I'm up to. That's sort of a good one-stop shop. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 